Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois. And we have got a great show for you today. We're talking about soil contaminations and, and kind of dealing with that. What does that mean? And the research that goes into that here at U of I Extension. Uh, we're going to be talking with Zach Grant here in just a second. But you know, I'm not doing this by myself. I am joined, as always, every single week by horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris. How are you? I am doing fantastically speaking. Uh, how about yourself? Not bad. Can't complain. <laughs> no complaints <laughs> here. Exactly. Have you tasted your soil lately? Uh, I have not. I don't know if I want to taste my soil. <laughs> you, have a, you have a dog. I have two dogs, so that's probably a really bad idea. Um, maybe one day we'll do a show about pets in the landscape because they just destroy everything. But yeah, but... How, how would you say your soil is in your your home, your property? Um, I think it's pretty good. We got nice black soil. Uh, we do live behind a, a historic house, um, the Duncan Mansion in Jacksonville, which used to be Governor Duncan's house. And I think we may have been part of their uh, trash pit because every time we dig, we get um, china and random pieces of, of stuff in, in the yard. So it's... It's like being an archaeologist every time you dig a hole sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I would say, yeah, because your house, your house itself, where you live, is also an older home. So whatever construction disturbance that occurred there happened decades, if not a hundred years ago. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the house was yeah, 19 teens, 1920s when it was built. We, depending on who you talk to, we get different dates. So I'm not entirely mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, old, yeah, uh, and uh, leaky is that I, I've heard people often describe houses of that age. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We get some nice, nice drafts. The mm -hmm. uh, curtains flutter sometimes when it's nice and windy and cold out and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess I would classify my home as more of a conventional suburbia type home built mid seventies. Uh, you can definitely, when I'm I'm digging outside and planting things either near the house, and then as I move away from the house, there's definitely a gradient of of soil texture differences. I mean, near the house, it's just a mishmash of stuff um, from like, I'll, I'll put the, the shovel in the ground and it'll go right in. I'll put the shovel in the ground right next to it. It'll be like hard clay, a little bit farther. There's a rock or concrete. And so that's up against the house. You get farther away. It gets a little bit better. So, uh, but yeah, here in Illinois, we do have nice deep soil, at least here in central Illinois. Uh, so I guess we're lucky enough for that. Yes, looks like chocolate cake. That's right. Yes. Well, I, I think it is time to introduce our special guest because uh, his soils might be a little bit different where he's growing. Uh, I don't know, though. So we better we better talk talk about it. So uh, let's introduce local food, small farms educator Zach Grant in South Suburban Cook County. Uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Ken, Chris, for having me. Uh, long time listener, first time first time caller, first time guest. This is great. Super excited. I'm, I'm glad you broke through our outer circle uh, to make it onto this uh, uh, illustrious podcast. <laughs> you broke through. Oh, Way to great. go. By breakthrough, we, we had a conversation mm -hmm. <laughs> last week at a conference. So, uh, yeah. But no, uh, Zach, I I mean, I say I've been a fan of yours for a while watching the stuff that you do. So, um, I mean, how would you classify the soil that you grow in 
Um, cause you're located in, in, in Cook County. Do you have Ken, the soil like Ken and I have like, like chocolate cake? It depends. And this oh. is that was a really great intro you all did. Cause I think we can refer back to it as we get into this conversation. So where I'm at, and you can actually see, I have a little background of, of Sosuko, the South Suburban Cook County Extension Research Urban Ag Demonstration Farm. We, we just call it Sosuko for short. I'm always uh, trying to find an acronym for everything, right? So think uh, Tribeca or those neighborhoods in New York that mm -hmm. have those, those really catchy acronyms. Uh, it always seems like when you see big grants that the university puts together they also come up with really excellent acronyms for the grants mm -hmm. so I, I was i was trying to find one and, and so suka was kind of the the best possible uh one that i could come up with so so we are located in, in south sub, more suburban uh rural fringe kind of para-urban cook county so this site actually has kind of a mixture of what i call native soil types that were developed mm -hmm through normal kind of soil formation processes over millennia, right? And potentially influenced by agriculture, but we can kind of get into that. Uh, kind of versus what I think you're getting at, which is the more properly termed anthropogenic or technosol type soils, which are heavily influenced soils, which when we talk about urban areas, that pretty much is 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 what they're classified as. You don't, we can, you know, if you've ever looked at the NRCS soil map, the digital soil map, the physical soil maps, the soil orders, there, there's always some sort of classification, whether it's a Flanagan silt loam or or something very specific. But up here in Cook, it's really a black, it's really a black box. Uh, in fact, if you look at the NRCS, they have a not only the so the digital soil map, but they actually have posters that you can purchase. And there's a couple of really great posters. I have a couple of them looking at the soil orders for all of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And and most of the, the soils, as, as Ken referred, these black chocolate cake soils are in that sort of mollusol prairie soil or the, the forest type soils, uh, which have thinner topsoils, but are, are still, you know, pretty rich, well-defined topsoils. But if you look at Cook County, Primarily, and especially the city of Chicago, it's completely grayed out. They don't have any sort of proper soil order classification for really anything. Uh, in Chicago, there's a little bit in kind of the suburban areas of Cook County, and in particular, Sosuko behind me, uh, they actually still have some classified soil. So we have two different, I think, an Elliott silt clay loam and, and one other type of uh, kind of silty clay loam. So most of our demonstration farm actually does have native soils that are classified, uh, but we treat part of the demonstration area, and I can show an image here in a moment, uh, like we would a, a, a proper urban soil that doesn't really have classification. So before we get into the contamination, just in general, that's kind of, they're really, urban soils are generally unclassified, which, which is interesting because there likely are some spots, right? Like when I look at the soil map, the NRCS soil map, if you look at like Humboldt Park or Garfield Park, right, which have been green spaces since the beginning of Chicago's formation. Some of those park soils actually have classification because they're mm -hmm. undisturbed, never been touched. Uh, but the rest of the developed part of of urban areas, like they just don't go out and take the soil cores and do the you know whatever they they do <laughs> the the soil mappers however they develop those soil maps they just haven't done it in in the urban areas but i've actually yeah. heard whispers that the nrcs is interested in maybe taking a second look at that maybe to seeing if there are some actual classifiable soils in urban areas even though by and large we kind of treat it as 
unclassifiable non-native soils, essentially. That's interesting. Yeah. So like when the NRCS sent out their surveyors across the country, yeah, Chicago probably was not a priority for them. Um, but I have heard, you know, so I, uh, one soil scientist, he's, he's joined our, our ranks as a volunteer recently. He talked about, he was one of them in the seventies the and eighties in Iowa that helped classify those soils. Um, and we've actually recently had NRCS does update those soil maps. And so, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, there is a new push to update some of these to make, make them a bit more applicable to urban farming. So we didn't get touch on that yet, what Susuko does and what it grows and maybe yeah. your background in that, that urban agriculture. Could you just maybe touch on that just a little bit? Like what, what's urban agriculture and what are you growing at Susuko? Sure, sure. So, I mean, a little bit, my background, you know, I come from, I don't come from a farming background, but I've been involved in what I kind of call small scale, diversified, like intensive vegetable farming, year round vegetable farming with high tunnels, even uh, for about 20, almost 25 years now, as crazy as as that is to say for me. Um, And I used to manage the student farm project on on campus, on on U of I's main campus. Maybe some of of your listeners have heard of that. I used to manage that. So I was kind of doing this sort of what I would call medium to slightly large compared to urban agriculture, diversified vegetable production at that site. That was like a seven acre, pretty intensively mechanized kind of vegetable operation. But I, I always had a passion for like the sort of micro farming scale what the Europeans call market gardening, what we call here market farming in, in a lot of sense. There's some discrepancy over the European definition, the U.S. definition between what's a garden versus what's a farm in terms of direct marketing, specialty crops. Mm-hmm. So that kind of led me down this path of interest in urban agriculture. Um, I, I kind of come from the Chicagoland era, although I didn't grow up in Chicago proper. I grew up just south of, of the city. So I I just had an interest in it, and this extension position opened up to kind of focus on urban agriculture uh, a little bit more within our local food small farm team. So I I just jumped on it. And in terms of definition, I mean, there really isn't a proper, like, specific definition. I mean, in general, urban agriculture is more or less the growing of specialty crops in urban settings at a variety Mm -hmm. of different scales or typologies, as, as I like to refer to it sometimes. So urban ag can refer to you know, really even backyard kind of urban home food production or urban homesteading all the way up to, you know, multiple acre market farms in in urban settings. But in general, most of the farms we see are kind of in the, you know, several thousand square feet up to half acre to acre, couple acres in size. So Suko behind me is, is about uh, 10,000 square feet. And, and just for visual purposes, I'll share my screen and show you an overhead shot of what that looks like. So that's kind of that's kind of what it looks like above. This is a drone shot. Uh, we did this really cool 3D mapping. I won't go into it in, in t- today, but essentially all those arrows you see, you'll be able to click on those. And it turns it in, you know, like street view in, in Google Maps, how you kind of go on the street view. All those arrows will be street views, essentially, of the farm. You can kind of navigate around the, uh, the our demo farm. So here you can see uh, this is about, again, about 10,000 square feet inside of the fence. Uh, in total, you know, we have maybe closer to like five to 6,000 square feet of, of bed space. We have a high tunnel, as you can see in the upper left-hand corner. 
Got a little storage container, a little seasonal wash pack up there. So most of the outdoor areas that you see at the bottom, those are all kind of native soils that we manage kind of like a traditional market farming system. And then in the upper right-hand corner where you see those raised beds and there's three beds just south of that that we call berm bed systems, which we can talk about a little bit later. And there we have this, the, the native soil capped. So our soil isn't contaminated, which we'll talk about in a minute, but we sort of treat it like it is contaminated and to kind of mimic and mirror and demonstrate what a lot of these urban farm practitioners have to do where they can't use the soil. They essentially just use landscape fabric like you can kind of see in the path there put maybe a layer of wood chips down and then build beds, structured or unstructured beds, burn beds on top of that with soil and compost. So we grow, I mean, we grow, you know, a diversity of crops um, anywhere from, you know, just like cooking greens. In this image, you can see things like kale and collards, uh, a lot of the fruiting crops in the, the southwest corner there. That's a lot of just the cucurbit and solanaceous family fruiting crops. In the high tunnel, we primarily do uh, fruity and vegetables. We're actually going to do some of the the ginger trial work with with you all uh, this year in that tunnel, uh, as well as winter salad greens. So so very similar crops to rural market farms. Kind of the scale and size and scope are just a little bit smaller and a little bit more intensively focused. So I mean, in the tunnel, for instance, typically we'll grow anywhere from three to four different crops per per bed in a year outdoors you know we sometimes get to two maybe three crops so a lot of double triple cropping uh, which is a hallmark of a lot of urban egg systems so this is is this a drone image and then you have within that you now have kind of linked to a 3d camera that's mm -hmm. on the ground so aerial yep. drone and now then the, there's buttons you can push uh linking the 3d imagery of the farm on the ground exactly, uh, exactly. okay it was, a, it was a project we did this past summer with uh ohio state university i'm a part of this urban ag integrated pest management working group and it was just a, a project that we worked on um, and it's really cool there some cornell folks did this several years ago and then um there was a uh, ipm professor at Ohio State University that did this with a bunch of Ohio urban farms a couple of years ago. And I, I just love the concept so much, not only, you know, for our teaching and kind of demonstration purposes, um, but just, yeah, I mean, but mainly to connect people, you know, via Zoom or things like this with mm -hmm. you know, urban farm tours so they don't have to physically go go in. We can I can just zoom in on one. Let's just click on one of the arrows really quick. So there it just went from that overhead image. So now you're kind of looking down. This, this area right here where we had, you know, one bed of kale and, you know, a bunch of tomatoes and peppers outdoor. And we we're doing a little bit of unreplicated trial work with different organic fertility treatments outside. Um, you know, we, we're actually kind of starting to limit what we do at Sosuko. So rather than trying to grow like 35 different crops that a lot of urban farms and community gardens try to do, we try to do... A, our farm a little bit more like it's kind of a commercial urban farm. So we're going to start focusing on like the higher value cash crops. And that's going to be easier for us to do replicated work. So, you know, if we're just looking at one crop to track like yield or productivity, mm -hmm. it'll be easier to assign different, you know, fertility treatments or, you know, mulching regimes or whatever we want to do, irrigation regimes, so we can actually get some good replicated data versus just like, doing observational side-by-side -side comparison. So so we do a little bit of it all, all here in our own replicated work, just traditional extension demonstration stuff. Um, 
we donate everything from this site too. you know, I'm, I'm, like all of us in extension who are involved with donation garden projects. I think we, we did about 4,000 pounds of produce from this site last year. So we've averaged around that for the past few years. We don't, we donate it all to a couple uh, food, food pantry locations in South suburban cook. Very yeah. That's neat. a little gist of the site. Um, we use it also for training was the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention about this particular site, our master urban farmer training program. We use this, you know, for a lot of the content for the course, but also we have some workshops here with the students who take that kind of hybrid online, online training with us as well. Yeah. They can get some like physical, like hands-on demonstration, yeah. uh, work here. So yeah, exactly. very cool. Exactly. Yeah. Susuko. Hey, I've never been there and, and maybe I, I can go visit virtually. So very, very yeah, neat to exactly. have this tool. And here's another picture just inside the high tunnel. So you can kind of see what that looks like in mm -hmm. here. We actually have, we, we did kind of, we started building some structured raised beds. These are six inch raised beds built with uh cedar, uh, five quarter or essentially mm -hmm. one inch, one inch, uh, decking boards it's a little bit cheaper to do it that way versus like the two by dimensional cedar lumber which is more rot resistant we would grow in ground here again this soil isn't contaminated but we're we replicate we're actually replicating a little bit of what they do at the dixon springs ag research center in southern illinois it just makes it easier to do like different replicated work and it's definitely easier to like transition like from the crops you see in this image to uh winter crops because if you can imagine like pulling all this out and trying to get the beds ready for a winter crop planting in September, it can be a real challenge. So that was one of the issues with that. So, um, so yeah, we, uh, once this is available to the public, we'll get the link out so people can come, you know, see what we're actually talking about here in this, in this podcast interview. Yeah. And, and I, are you still pretty active on the local foods YouTube channel? Uh, do you still post updates? I, I try to. So, you know, much like yourself, Chris, who kind of experimented into the sort of vlog <laughs> space in 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 on YouTube, I've got this vlog series I call the Urban Egg Connect vlog series. It kind of corresponds with our Urban Egg Connect newsletter we put out quarterly up here in Cook. And you know, I have I don't know, I've got maybe like thirty or so video vlogs on there. And as you both know well, with the kind of post recording edit process, like it just it. It's fun to do. I like doing it just like you guys love doing this, but it, it was taking a little bit more time than I anticipated. So <laughs> I'll probably continue to do it in some format. But what I'm actually trying to do this year, which I'll definitely get you the links for to push this out, is I have a new I have an Instagram channel for Sosuko. So I want to start doing more of their like video reels and just, you know, images I post and, and talk about there because a lot of farm farmers small farmers, and I'm sure a lot of gardeners, they, they tend to gravitate towards Instagram, it feels like, um, for the visual aspect of it. So I don't know if you all are into Instagram at all for for anything you do extension wise, but I'm going to try to start doing more of that this year. So so in that way, it's just easier for me to do while I'm there. If there's an idea, I can make a quick little you know two minute video, mm -hmm. post it on Instagram and share it while I'm there versus like going back into the office, editing, posting, trying to promote it, blah, blah, blah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we'll put those in the show notes. I'll, I'll say Ken and I are working on our dance co coordination so we can become <laughs> TikTok stars. Um, but in, in seriousness, uh, what was the, the statistic I heard? The majority of people under age 25 are using TikTok as their mm -hmm. news source. So instead of going to Google and typing in, you know, 
uh, urban farming, they're going to TikTok and they're typing that in. So uh, it's another just another platform for us to get on, Ken. It, it is. It is. <laughs> it's challenging in extension because we we do our best as educators to, you know, either do some of the the research ourselves or work with faculty members or try to mine that literature for that good data to sh to share. And it's so hard for us to to share that good information. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the pop, what I call the popular media in in gardening and horticulture, like. You know, I mean, there's countless examples on YouTube and Instagram. People have millions of followers and, and their followers just yeah. listen to everything they say, even if it's not really well validated, um, you know, growing information. Not to say mm -hmm. they're not good growers and it's not good uh, material and education to share, but it's just um, maybe not as rigorous in terms of the, the the sort of work that we try to do in extension. So, yeah, oh, a well, perennial challenge for us. <laughs> it's Forever. Yeah, that's that's job security, right, Ken? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let's TikTok our way over to talk about soil contamination. Ken, could you get us started in this line of questioning, please? Yes, I think we, we've touched on this a little bit, um, but how do urban soils kind of differ from our, our quote-unquote normal soils? You, know, you talked about, you know, don't necessarily have soil classifications, uh, for urban soils, but are there other ways that we could kind of differentiate them from our maybe less more undisturbed type soils? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I mentioned that terminology, that anthropogenic technosoil. There is actually a whole kind of soil science in, involved in anthropogenic soils. But in general, yeah, I mean, it's just it really is highly disturbed soils, right? So if you look at if you think about a traditional soil profile, where you have the A horizon, B horizon, C horizons, and like the regolith or the, you know, the, the actual material maybe that the soil was formed from. You know, in urban soils, it tends to be situations where you might dig down a foot and it might kind of look like a, a rural soil, but it also, you might dig down six inches and there's a bunch of like rubble or fill from a building that was there or material that was scraped from one location and deposited there you kind of never you don't know what you're going to get it's it's a bit of a grab bag in terms of um, the actual soil profile so to our, you know kind of adding on to what we were talking about earlier um interested i'm actually looking at a paper right now i don't know that i need to share an image of this and they actually were looking at then this is something i thought was intriguing they some of the initial classified anthropogenic soils you can probably imagine they were looking at um in, in Italy, in Rome, right, where they were kind of excavating ruins, they would actually dig out and they, they'd find like, you know, Roman walls or, fen or fences that they would build or old floors or even situations where they would find like kind of like what they're what they're, what they're calling it, vegetable mold, in quote, or like mm -hmm. vermicompost or dark earth that they had deposited for growing on top of what they found was like the the actual native soil, you know, before the Roman times. So I, I think I all that to say, maybe, you know, you mentioned earlier, Chris, talking about your both of your sites where you're just kind of digging down. That's something that I would recommend everyone, whether you're in an urban area or wherever you're at, you can look at these soil maps. Right. But I think the first thing you got to do is get out there and just dig down and see what you're you're, you're working with. Right. Dig. You maybe don't have to dig a full soil pit like some soil scientists do. <laughs> But you certainly want to dig down and see what you're working with, right? And and you're going to get some idea right away whether or not you have kind of 
an urban, heavily transformed anthropogenic soil or something that's kind of native and 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 was there uh, in the first place. So I bring that up again, Ken, with your question, only to say that assessment of your of your site or your soil definitely, if you're in urban areas, important. But even maybe some of the suburban kind of rural fringe areas, especially in your case, Ken, where you said you have an old house really close by, right? So if you're thinking about doing any food production gardening in and around, like you know, a century old house, you know, lead contamination might be the big priority. So you you maybe even want to dig down and see what's going on, but then also kind of cordon that area off for a separate, what we'd call a composite soil sample, because that area might be high risk, right? And then maybe in an area where, in especially maybe in a rural setting uh, where you know there wasn't an old house, maybe that can be kind of your low risk sample. Um, so, you know, I think a mixture of, the actual physical structure of these soils and the profile uh, it definitely differentiates and is something you need to start with because even if you find out that your soil isn't contaminated, it may be primarily rubble or it may be super compacted or there may be an, an old parking lot, you know, a few inches down. So you really need to figure those things out first before you really worry about contamination. But then, yeah, I would say that the thing that sets urban soils aside from rural soils is the higher risk of contamination. And, you know, one thing I, I've learned, I'm not a environmental engineer or an, you know, proper EPA environmental assessment expert, but there are some basic things you can do uh, in terms of assessing your site. I mean, if, if you know that a neighborhood or your site was primarily residential and there was no industry or it's maybe not next to like, a super heavily trafficked road, then the primary potential contaminant would still be heavy metals and primarily lead, right? Because of, for the old house example, you know, most of the paint up until the 70s was lead-based paint and pretty much all the gasoline up until that same era was lead-based gasoline. So high traffic lead deposition uh, is a problem and lead paint is, is a big problem. So old homes, proximity to, to high traffic areas, lead's going to be your your big uh, number one factor and, and that and that gets most of the attention when it comes to contaminate environmental contamination in urban soil certainly there's other things like you know the other polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and uh there's a new thing with biosolids now well, it's not a new thing but a new interest of uh, the the pfos compounds like per and polyfluoroalkyl substances the forever chemicals uh, there's all sorts of stuff popping up all the time that you might have to be concerned about, depending on on how the site was used. But, but I would say heavy metals is probably gets the most attention, and lead, which you know, we've done some work with research with with campus faculty, and the the work has been done elsewhere too. Is has been the primary focus. What about say like arsenic or something like that? Maybe in more rural areas. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So the the one heavy metal contaminant, at least that I know of in in looking into this is if you are in a rural area that, and you had maybe like a, a very old orchard that was managed maybe with very old, now outdated, unlabeled uh, pesticides, arsenic was a common active or maybe, you know, inner ingredient in those pesticides. And so if you know that you have a, an area like that where arsenic was used as a pesticide, you might want to do some heavy metal testing for arsenic. Um, so that's a great example of doing what the EPA calls that phase one risk assessment, where you're just kind of 
figuring out what happened with that soil or that area before your new intended use of growing food in it. And, you know, sometimes that might be easy to figure out. You might have neighbors who know like, oh yeah, that was an old orchard. They used to spray all sorts of crazy stuff. So that might be a clue like, okay, yeah, we should probably test for arsenic. But if you're in an urban area, it's like, oh yeah, if it's just an old neighborhood with old historic housing stock, then maybe lead's the big concern. But I'm actually working with an, an, a group. I was just doing a technical assistance with a, a MEFTP participant and they're building an urban farm site right next to an old uh, EPA Superfund site and across from another brownfield. So it's not on that site, but it's adjacent to it. So in that case, that opens up a whole other can of worms. Like, uh, you know, lead could be a problem, but there could be all sorts of other potential environmental contaminants that you don't know about. And even if you can test for some of those things, there's not a, for some of those contaminants, there's not always like a a really good one-to-one, oh, we know it's here at this level, here's what you do about it, right? We're starting to learn more with lead, which we can discuss here as we move along, but it's not always straightforward in terms of what we do with remediation. But we have some tactics that we can we can talk about that work and that definitely work really well for urban ag because of the small scale footprint. We can do a lot more what we call in-situ remediation versus like anything having to do with like removing soil, cleaning it, bringing it back, which th- there are examples of people doing that. Like some of these EPA Superfund sites that a very expensive ex-situ remediation is to literally clean the soil, which I mm-hmm. I can't imagine the cost or the all the heavy equipment you need to do something like that. Um, but but certainly, you know, for rural areas, heavy metal contamination isn't as big of a concern unless, like you said, Ken, there might be historic like pesticide usage in, in an era that you know about. So how do you clean a soil? I'm assuming it's not like you just don't put it in the dishwasher. Do you? It's, it's yeah, that's, that's, gone. I don't, <laughs> cleans I'm, everything. Not, I'm not fully up to speed on it. When I look in the literature <laughs> and the research on this, they, they talk about all these ex situ and in situ methods. So in situ is like in place there, not removing ex situ is removing it. And when they talk about ex situ, they, yeah, they talk literally about like washing the soil, different, different things they can do after removing the soil and then bringing it back, which I, you know, I'm not, that's kind of beyond my expertise or anything I'd be familiar with. Um, But in situ, in situ for, for some of these metals, particularly lead, I think is a viable remediation strategy. And I kind of hinted at it earlier when I was describing some of our demo growing areas at Sosuko, where you can literally, some people call it capping and filling, where you just kind of cap off what might be contaminated and you fill in on top of that. So, I mean, obviously for big acreages, that's not practical, but if we're talking about, you know, a few thousand square feet, a couple acres, that that's probably more doable. Well, I, in Macomb, they had a super fun site in the middle of town mm-hmm. that they cleaned up and there, I mean, there was a pit 30 foot deep that they dug out. Oh, wow. And it was it was just kind of this empty pit for months. I don't know what they did with the soil. I don't know if they cleaned it or if they landfilled it or brought in fresh stuff. I I, I don't know. All I know is it was maybe an acre big, probably less than that. And it was a huge project. Uh, tons of equipment, tons of earth moving. Um, it had to be pretty costly. And they filled it all back in. Now it's just a turf grass. So it's. Yeah. Well, one thing I will touch on before we get into any other more details about 
mm-hmm. is in situ remediation or talking about lead in particular uh, is bioremediation because we get a lot of questions mm-hmm. about that and we do it, it's one of those things where you know this happens a lot when we're trying to do this knowledge translation from research where it's like there has been research done on it and shown that there are plants that are bioaccumulators of certain metals right but that doesn't always mean that there's a practical application for it so on the subject of that there certainly is plenty of research and data out there to show that certain plants can be bioaccumulators of some metals not all in all contexts but in order to truly remediate the soil to those geogenic or background levels the the time scale when they model this out is it's just not practical i mean we're talking hundreds if not thousands of years of of constant bioremediation and uptake and then you if, even if you're doing that you have uptake of a known environmental contaminant into biomass and then that biomass needs to be disposed of properly so mm-hmm. while that sounds like it could be a promising strategy in terms of practicality it, it it just doesn't seem like there's much water there in terms of application i mean i mean certainly if there's like a super fun site like you're saying chris and you wanted to just to put it into a forever perennial bioaccumulator right that's that it's always maybe that's an application for it but if you're trying to grow food on a site and you're like, oh, my levels are maybe a hundred part per million higher than what they need to be. Um, let me try to reduce it with bioremediation that it just doesn't seem like it's practical, unfortunately. And that also goes for there's interest in like micro remediation with mushrooms. It's kind of the same concept is certainly it, it does w- happen, right? You can replicate it in laboratory and maybe some field settings, but in terms of applicability, it, it really just isn't practical from 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 what we can tell let let's bring in some of your research that that you've done now i remember oh my gosh how long ago was this it was you and dr andrew margino showed up to a, a team in service on campus and you were talking about lead contamination um and and you brought out this it's like the second time we've referenced star trek in a, in a month here on the show but you brought out what i'll call a tricorder oh. um and it's it's a portable x-ray you know the words I don't, Zach, but it it, it astounded me. Could um, let let's tie in some of your research here now with some sure. of uh, the soil contamination. So, what did your research entail, um, and was it looking specifically at lead? And what the heck is that tricorder thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll talk about it a little bit, and then I can I'll share one image, and this will, mm-hmm. is also a link to uh, one of our extension articles on on the subject. So yeah, so when Dr. Margino came on campus several years ago, I, I was already maybe three years into my um, extension transition. He had some interest. He's a soil scientist by trade. He'd done a lot of really interesting work in in Africa with soils, but he he had an interest in you know environmental contamination, particularly with lead. And and I had never heard of. I I knew about what I'll call wet chemistry for for lead testing for mm-hmm. traditional and same thing with traditional soil testing. We, we'll get into in a bit. But he brought up this idea of what he called in. Uh, well, let's use the term again: in situ, in place, dry chemistry involving the portable X-ray fluorescence device or PXRF device. I mean, essentially, you know, it, it's exactly what it is. It's it's a handheld scanning device that emits a a, a low dose of radiation. Uh, again, to handle the machine and operate it, you do need to get a little bit of training. Um, I actually am not a certified operator of of one. It, it was him and his uh, lab students, his grad students that were doing most of, of the actual scanning. 
but essentially, yeah, it's a it's a portable machine, and you literally can in place scan any sample, right? Geologists use it quite a bit to look at chemical composition uh, of different rocks, or even maybe anthropologists do it when they're excavating sites to try to figure out what the chemical makeup is of something in place without having to remove it. I think that's where the large application of that technology is. But Andrew had the idea, which wasn't a new idea. Other people have been doing it to apply it to soils. So essentially scanning the soil in place with an x-ray and it gives you kind of a, a, a readout of the chemical makeup of that sample. The challenge with it, because it sounds nice. Well, there's a few challenges. One is the handheld devices are anywhere from eight to like $20,000 a piece. So it's not necessarily a piece of equipment that like, you know, even an extension office could necessarily budget for. Certainly we would love to have one. Uh, some of the, I'm trying to get some of the NRCS offices up here uh, to get to get one. And maybe there's going to be a new researcher at UIC who I've worked with who might get one in their startup package. Um, Andrew has one on campus. And for that particular project, we were, we part, he partnered with extension to what we did is like, we had a bunch of different, um, you know, either conferences or workshops or things where we had a bunch of people coming to an, an event. Right. So we essentially just advertised it, bring in a sample, right. And come in, we'll scan it for you, give you the initial results. And I was there to kind of help them interpret that and, and tell them what that meant. Um, so that was the primary kind of extension facing citizen science interaction piece. But all that data kind of got molded into a research project, a couple of research projects that uh, him and his uh, grad student worked on. And I'll just share screen share just really quick. Um, here's here's the article that was published on our website that Emily Steele wrote a couple of years ago now that kind of highlights most of it. And I think there's a link here to the open access research project for the, the lead map. And then Andrew and George Watson, his uh, grad student at the time, further did a little bit of work in looking at lead uptake mechanisms with different types of, well, one particular crop in contaminated urban soil. So they looked at um, uptake into tomatoes, you know, both in greenhouse studies and in field studies in contaminated soils to see what the uptake mechanisms are. So, you know, we did, we collected maybe like a, I don't know, it was like two to 300 samples with the extension events. And here's a picture of, of myself. Uh, and uh, I think it's, I think it was Elizabeth was her name. That was uh, Andrew's, I think a research assistant at the time. You can literally see her pointing the gun. That's the PXRF device right there. <laughs> So we'd had people coming in, scanning it live, but then his grad student actually went through and this map that you see right here, this color uh, coded map, uh, his grad student went and did a like kind of a cross-sectional survey of all the soils in Chicago. So he went into like, like public ease, you know, any public easement that he could access from the sidewalk or, you know, parkways, parks. And he just did this like kind of gridded PXRF scan of the entire Chicago land area. And this map right here, I think is all the individual samples, but we worked with a kind of a geospatial geography expert on campus to create a heat map. So somewhere in this, and we can share this uh, with the listeners, there's a heat map where you can kind of look at your area of Chicago and it kind of takes all these individual data points and creates a heat map. So you can see, oh yeah, I'm in this neighborhood and it looks like the lead levels were a bit higher than they are in other areas. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, it's not it's, super, it's not super granular and accurate, but at least it gives you an idea of like, oh yeah, maybe my neighborhood might have been a little more contaminated. So maybe I should look into this further uh, before doing anything more extensive uh, with that soil. So that was kind of the extension facing slash research uh, part of that particular project. Um, and then, yeah, then, then Andrew went on to do some, a little bit more work with the tomato uptake. Sure. And, and the heat map, that's essentially, it takes those individual data points and creates gradients so yeah. that um, it, but yeah, I will say on this, at least the lead soil image here that they have of this data set of points, mm -hmm. um, red is a high lead levels, green yep. is low. The map has a lot of red and orange on it. Yeah. <laughs> not much, not as much green, I would say. Definitely, definitely. The the levels that they found that we found with the study, this says average, but it was actually the median number was around 220 part per million, which is 11 times higher than the geogenic levels of 20 part per million. Mm -hmm. So this is where it gets a little murky though, because right below that you're seeing, they're, they're saying that it's above the 400 part per million threshold that the EPA established a while back. But the problem with that 400 part per million level is that that was established as a risk assessment for essentially children playing in and around contaminated soil. So that's mm -hmm. really about breathing in dust or in, you know, indirectly consuming soil with dirty hands. Yeah. It's not a level that was really hyper focused on can I grow safely in that soil? Yeah. So can that I, was can I work that soil every single day? Like can right, I be exactly. in it every day for a job? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that 400 part per million level is is maybe more accurate for that. The California EPA, as California often does, they have slightly more stringent standards that are more akin to what European standards are for this a lot of times. And their cautious rate is is slightly under 100 part per million or 80 part per million. So I've kind of my new recommendation just in general based on our work and the work of others and other recommendations is if you do a lead soil test, right? Um, it, whether it's PXRF or like a wet chemistry analysis that the lab does, there is some difference with that, um, which I didn't quite get into in terms of calibrating that PXRF machine. But in general, if it's if it's less than 100 part per million or in that kind of 80 to 100 part per million range, you're probably okay. I mean, that's definitely mm -hmm. above background levels, but in terms of like growing in it, working in it, it's likely okay. It's when you get above 100 part per million and then the EPA 400 part per million is another threshold. Uh, it starts to get murky in terms of like the risk of of that soil, right? With lead in particular, I've seen ranges all the way up to 1200 part per million that that Andrew and George looked at, where depending on what you're growing, that there like there might not be any uptake, right? So tomatoes are a good example. In this study, in particular, they found that if soils were contaminated up to 1200 part per million and they grew like a fruiting crop, like tomatoes in them, there, there wasn't any detectable lead in that edible portion of the fruit. Now, maybe in a carrot crop in a 1200 part per million soil, that might be, there might be a little bit more uptake, more accumulation, more risk with in actually consuming those vegetables. So there's still a lot of gray kind of uncertainty with recommendations for growing and, and what your lead levels actually are. We're, with some research like this, we're starting to refine it a little bit more. Um, but again, you know, back to what with Ken's question earlier, it, it it's all gonna come back to 
what's the quality of my soil anyway, right? It, does it drain well? Is it even actually a native soil? So if it's, even if it's not contaminated or kind of in that gray area of contamination, you might not want to grow in that soil anyway, right? Because mm -hmm. of other factors. So capping it off, bringing in new soil, compost and, and topsoil mixtures, you might end up doing that anyway. So, and when you do that, you kind of negate growing in the soil and, and there's less concern uh, about the levels of, of contamination in your soil, if that, if that makes sense. And, and the last, well, not the last thing, but the one thing I do want to mention that is pretty clear with this work as well as when you look at the literature you know because when you're thinking about growing in contaminated soil your first concern and you were just kind of alluding to this chris is oh i'm growing in it the plants are going to take the lead up i'm going to eat the plant and then i'm going to get the lead in me because of that i would what i would call that is an indirect or secondary pathway for exposure it certainly can happen and there are groups like especially young children that are really sensitive to lead for cognitive development that it's really important to pay attention to that but the primary concern pretty much for everybody is that direct lead exposure to what you were saying working in the soil all day breathing in contaminated dust um, not washing the produce and and actually ingesting the soil itself that is likely the bigger risk factor by far and we've known this for a while, which is why that EPA 400 part per million special has been around for a while, because children living in old public housing stock that are exposed to, you know, lead paint dust or contaminated soil in their playground, like they're getting they're getting exposed to, to lead that way. And, and it was causing cognitive uh, issues uh, with with small children. So we've known that that direct exposure was was a big problem. So for growing in it for farmers and gardeners. The one thing you can do to kind of knock that off as a best practice is just to, you know, not have any exposed soil, right? So we're putting down landscape fabric, we're putting down mulch, um, you know, we're we're not working the soil too much when it's dusty and dry. So, or maybe we're even wearing masks, right? We talk about PPE with handling pesticides, but what about you know breathing in dust and soil and and those issues? We we often overlook that. So I mean, I think even wearing N95s if you're in a super dusty potentially contaminated soil is probably a good idea. Um, so it's it's little best practices like that in conjunction with testing your soil that kind of lead you down a path of like, what should I do uh, if my soil is contaminated? We'll, we'll link to this article that you you shared with us, Zach. Um, and it, it looks at lead. Is there another soil data set? Is there other contaminant data sets out there that people can, can see online or have That's those not question. been developed? Good question. This one is for for lead. What I just showed you that was main, just for lead. There may be so. There's the published work, and then there was a couple links in the article. I think there was the mapmyenvironment.com. I think that they'll find where there may be other contaminants from other research where you can kind of they have like GIS files like that to overlay it to show you maybe there's other contaminants. I mean the the that's like an open source thing. It's Welcome to Map My Environment, visualizing urban environmental health around the world. So, yeah, you can actually view the map or you can actually contribute like soil samples to it. And that's it's like an open source mapping project. So that just looking at that map, you might be able to find other things of interest, but certainly it doesn't have, you know, every known possible contaminant and what the potential exposure levels are. I mean, lead again, back to our site assessment. I mean, lead lead is very much tied to historic 
you know, use, right? Whether it's housing stock, automobiles. Well, Andrew in his lectures, he gives a great example of, of the Romans. We were just talking about the Romans. You know, every a lot of people know that story, right? Like the aqueducts, they're they're so innovative, but all their piping was made out of lead. <laughs> so it was, it was malleable, it was easy to make lead piping. And, you know, they were inadvertently, you know, poisoning themselves with with lead and they didn't know it. Um, so it was it was like a good idea at the time. But in retrospect, it turned out that it wasn't such a great idea. So so lead, lead we can really tie that to historical site use and, and maybe like the arsenic example with pesticides. But some of these other environmental contaminants with industrial use and brownfield sites and, and, and contamination like that, that's. There's there's research, there's study, there's work done in that space, but it's not super clear. Like I like I have some checklists I've developed for urban farmers that want to develop a site, but I it certainly is not exhaustive. I can't you can't think about every possibility, which again ultimately leads us down to this in situ remediation where we end up just kind of capping the soil potentially if if we don't know for sure and, and kind of bringing in a new media that we make another type of technosol or anthro anthrosol, um, but a beneficial one that we use to kind of grow in. So it, it's complicated. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of potential for urban agriculture. We're seeing it now. There's a lot of interest in it, but there certainly are significant upfront considerations you need to think about before just like starting to throw stuff in the ground and, and grow in it. Well, that was a lot of great information about urban farming and dealing with soil contamination. We had a great conversation with Zach, and we are going to split this into two parts. So next week, uh, look for uh, part two as we continue this conversation with Zach about remediating uh, contaminated soil kind of in a, a urban vegetable or farm uh, situation. And some of the pitfalls that we run into, especially when it comes to soil management and all that compost we wind up throwing on the ground, which, you know, some people say compost can do no wrong. And as you'll find out next week, oh, it kind of can. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Check us out next week. Well, the Good Growing Podcasts is a production of University of Illinois Extension, edited this week by me, Chris Enroth. And a special thank you to Ken Johnson and Zach Grant for hanging out and chatting with me about urban farming and soil contamination. And look for that conclusion next week. Well, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.